electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The major sell-off in stocks down sharply today on concerns that one of China's largest property developers could default on its debt. We'll speak exclusively today to two investors you do not want to miss. Kinecos founder Jim Chanos has warned of a bubble in China's property market for more than a decade and has been betting against several of the company's financial institutions. We'll get an update from him. Citron's Andrew Left first raised questions about Evergrande in 2012. He got banned from trading in Hong Kong after that, after a lengthy trial. Both will join me shortly to discuss this important story. Our investment committee, of course, with me on what all of this means to global markets. Joining me today, Shannon Sakosha, Steve Weiss, Joe Terranova, and Pete Najarian. He is the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. It's good to see everybody today. Let's check stocks. As you know, they are sharply lower. We've breached some key technical levels as well. The Dow right now, right around the lows of the day, down 623, uh, almost 2%, not quite. S&P 500, we'll call it 2%. It's a loss of 87.5 points, 43.45. NASDAQ getting hit more severely today. That is a loss of 2.5%. And the small caps, not a pretty picture, approaching a 3% decline there. So, Steve Weiss, I'm wondering how you view all of this, given how negative you've been on China and the Chinese stocks. You're still short Alibaba, Billy Billy, Pinduoduo. You have a short position in the queues. You have about 30% cash. So what do you say about where we are today, what this story means in the bigger picture? Well, look, my, my theme has been the market is now looking at, investors looking at the market now as being half empty, so to speak, versus half full, where every benign you know, event was regarded positively and took the market up. Now we're turning that with just a series of negative catalysts, and no positive catalysts. I'm not sure that the Evergrande is that big a deal on the top line. Definitely not to financials. You have hedge funds and long onlys that do own the paper unless they've sold it because it's going towards bankruptcy. And if you paid attention to China, you knew this has been happening for months already. However, where the contagion is, make no mistake about it, is in the commodities. So we've already seen China cut back on steel production, but you've got the largest property developer in China that now is not paying its bills. So suppliers are back on their heels. They need that cash. And you've got credit tightening for the other property developers. So that backs up into what they need. That's why we saw iron ore break below 100 on Friday. We're seeing copper come down. Steel's held up there, but that's going to come down. Not just one commodity moves. They all move in unison. There may be lags, but they all move. So that's why you're seeing it happen. Look, Evergrande actually was a little bit of a cherry on top of it, tipped the scales a little bit today. We people say, I got to get worried. Plus, then we've got the Fed on Wednesday. So we've got a, then, you know, potential for some not, a number of negative events. And so that's why I've been negative. 
I'm not ready to put money back in the market yet. Mm -hmm. I've cut back a lot of positions in addition to selling some. I think you'll get a better opportunity to deploy capital. So, Shannon, there are those who are out today defending the market, um, calling it a buying opportunity. Kramer, for, for his take on it, says it might be a little too early to do that. You sold Alibaba last Thursday. How do you see things today? Well, just to be fair, I mean, I, 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 we've spoken about the stock many times over the last several months. Um, you know, the reason we bought Alibaba last year was that we felt like they had put an incredible amount of spend into expanding into their adjacent markets. And now we feel like not only have they not um, been able to execute on that, we're also seeing this regulatory overhang on their cloud and fintech businesses, which obviously were where we thought there was undervalued opportunity there. Um, as we go through the next couple of months, I continue to look back and think about the, um, the enthusiasm we've had in the material space um, in some of these very pro-cyclical epicenter stocks. I think there was a lot of run-up to Steve's point, not just on the China trade, but also on the infrastructure trade here in the United States. And there's still some opportunities here. Um, but I do think it's a bit early. We were looking for this swoon, Scott, back in August, and we didn't get it. We had a really strong August. And I think a lot of people expected this to be a really a two-month sort of choppy market. So if you look at the catalyst over the next couple of weeks, we got the Fed this week and another, another number of central banks, the BOE, the BOJ. And we don't have a lot of positive catalysts, to Steve's point, to really fall back on. And so we might get, you know, another couple of weeks of trending down. Valuations look toppy. Um, but I think if you're looking at barbelling your portfolio and thinking about what's going to do well, um, I disagree with being short the queues. I think you should be moving into tech. And I think that that's going to be where you're going to find some additional momentum as we go over the next couple of months or so. Unless, of course, you think that the overall market is going to continue to have an issue and then technology stocks are going to be a place um, that you're going to see money moving out. I want to move on to the others. But, Steve, I'll, I'll give you a chance briefly, and I mean briefly, right. to respond to the specific move you have in the cues to what Shannon just said. Yeah, the cues were a hedge because I've got I've got cue exposure. So I've been negative on the market. I didn't want to take gains and sell everything. So I bought the cues purely as a hedge. It's not a long term play. I came in short them. I added a little bit to the short side on them. But I'm not going to be there. If I'm there for another day, it's going to be a long time. OK. The other issue uh, that everybody's thinking about is clearly um, contagion and what this this means for the for the bigger picture. Now, Kramer this morning said he doesn't think it's going to have a broader impact beyond a couple of days, Joe, um, when you're going to have, in his words, you know, bears coming on our network and talking about how bad the situation is and how it's going to spread here, there and everywhere else. And by the way, we do have a notable bear coming up in just a few minutes in Jim Chano. So I understand what Kramer is talking about. Um, do you think that this is a bigger issue for the markets that we need to be paying even more attention to than perhaps we already are? I think that over the next couple of days, I'm going to agree with Jim's comments. The market's going to be very stormy. I don't think this is going to resolve itself very quickly. Um, ultimately, it will resolve itself. And you'll look back upon this and you'll say, well, that was a tremendous buying opportunity. But there are some things to think about in the near term that are important. First of all, Scott, let's remember, this is not something that the Federal Reserve can fix with liquidity. This goes beyond the bounds of their control. In addition to that, if you go back and you look at this absence of a 5% correction, and you study it on a multi-month basis. The last time we went through this was in 16 through 18. And at the end of that, 
what you found was a significant short gamma or short volatility trade unwind. And that's probably the most critical thing I'm watching here. This has been a year where the VIX is averaged below 20. You've got a lot of players that are short volatility. And if there's going to be actual contagion, I think it would look similar to when you guys were in the, at the Super Bowl in 2018 and we saw the unwind of that short volatility <clears throat> trade. So yep. that's kind of something that I'm observing here in the, near, in the near term. And that's why I think probably this is going to be a little bit stormier over the coming days than we think it, uh, previously. Yeah, Joe uh, tees you up perfectly, Pete, in terms of how you're watching volatility, yep. uh, the ins and outs of, of certain <clears throat> types of trades that are driving the action. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, Scott, one of the things that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks has been the idea of volatility getting up over 20, but only sitting there for just a couple of hours, maybe a day, and then falling right back down into the teens again. When we saw that move on Friday, it just felt a little bit different. We got up to 21 and a half. We closed just underneath 21. And today, obviously, based on this news, you see this volatility index absolutely spike. And now I think the last I looked, we were trading above 26. So, it's a matter of how long can that last, though, because we've seen this time and time again, but it feels like this time it might last a little bit longer. This is the kind of news, and to Joe's point, the Fed can't fix this. This is something that's well beyond that. And so it is something where a lot of folks are going to be scratching their heads. A lot of the bears are going to be pretty excited and try to be very aggressive, I would think. And we probably will see some of that. I think, you know, so many of the folks that we listen to day in and day out, these great analysts who have been calling for a pullback, this, if it's a pullback, this is just the beginning. And, and I'm not saying that this is a pullback that's going down 10 or 20 percent, but I am hearing some of those folks start to reiterate some of that. Mm -hmm. And so I am definitely being a little bit more cautious with how I am approaching things. I have not added any stocks today. Usually on a day where we have the VIX spike, the markets go down 600 plus points. There are great opportunities, in my opinion, to buy stocks. I am not seeing that. Options, maybe. Stocks, absolutely not yet. Yeah. Um, and maybe in, with good reason. Uh, you're looking at uh, the sell-off intensify a bit. We're at session lows across the board, approaching a near 700-point decline on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, 2% really across the board. In the Russell's case, a greater than 3% decline. Let's welcome in now one of our headliners, Kinecos founder Jim Chanos. He's been talking about a bubble in China's property market since January of 2010 and has been short several Chinese financial institutions with exposure to the real estate sector for many years. He joins me now in a CNBC exclusive interview. Jim, welcome. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm um, good, thanks. You've been negative, as, as most people know, on China for a very long time. At times, that bet has looked very bad. Uh, at times, it has looked very good. Is this now your moment? How are you thinking about this developing story? <laughs> well, I mean, so our, our, our call on China, as you, as you mentioned, went back to the end of 2009, beginning of 2010. And, and really, it was based on... on what we're, we're, we're now seeing, which is the, the questioning the, the economic model of the People's Republic of China uh, and all the knock-on effects it had, because it is an economic model that is still, to this day, relied on real estate and real estate investment to drive growth. And it, it, it went from you know, pretty much the ridiculous to the sublime over the past 12 years. And you now have China you know, having property as uh, residential property uh, equaling 20% of GDP every year, uh, all real estate-related uh, activities approaching 30% of GDP every year. These are just off-the-charts kind of numbers, and they've gotten worse under President Xi, not better. 
And so I think that, that what Evergrande is telling us is, and I'm going to disappoint some of your, uh, your commentators, is we don't think it's systemic to the Western financial markets. We do think it is, 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 there are two things you can draw from the Evergrande episode. Number one, it highlights the fragility of the Chinese economic model, which is still heavily reliant on putting up apartment buildings. They put up $20 million a year, year in and year out. Um, and number two, uh, their response to it, and how in Xi's China, where we are seeing a different change in tone that you alluded to, in the way that the government is treating business, business leaders, Western investors, how will they handle a bailout that everybody still thinks is coming in some way, shape, or form? Will Western bondholders be bailed out? Will it only go to property owners who are owed apartments that are not yet constructed by Evergrande? Um, will banks take a haircut? And we don't know yet. And, and how China handles the inevitable restructuring of this massive company um, will tell us a lot about Xi's priorities um, in working out just the trillions in bad debt it, that are in this economy. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated um, dynamic for, for certain. On, on one hand, I, I gather that Beijing doesn't want to acknowledge uh, or say that excessive risk-taking in the private sector is acceptable or that they condone it. But on the other hand, if you have the second largest property developer within China um, threatening to go bust, they right. also don't want the ripple effects that that could have on, on the broader economy. I, I, I get your point, and it is tricky. For disclosure standpoint, are you short Evergrande today or any of the property developers within China? If not, how are you playing this? No, the prop, we are not. The property developers are very thinly traded. Uh, if you take a look at the stock chart of Evergrande, you, you'll see what I mean. Uh, before this collapse, it went on an epic parabolic rise just a few years ago uh, that was inexplicable. Um, we've, we've been short and, and remain short a couple of the larger Chinese financial, financial institutions with what we think are pretty bad loan books, which are going to need to be you know, dealt with. We also short a couple of the cross-border giant banks that trade in London um, with very large Hong Kong and China property exposure. Um, doesn't take a rocket science to figure out which those are. Um, we're short uh, one of the U.S. casino operators in Macau. And then we have uh, a couple of Chinese brokers that trade in the U.S. that are illegally, uh, we believe, allowing Chinese citizens to invest in U.S. stocks. And we think a crackdown is coming there. So all in all, our China exposure is probably, it's up from where it was a year ago, um, it's well below where the, the highs were back in 2011 and, and, uh, and 15. Um, having said all that, I, I do think that, that this is a really kind of critical moment for us to see what the Chinese leadership does in dealing with this. This will be the fourth attempt for them to slow down property since I've been following China. There was one in 2011. There was one basically in 2014-15. Um, we know what happened then. There was one in 2018, and uh, now we have the fourth. In each of those cases, the economy hit stall speed uh, pretty quickly, and the authorities took their foot off the brakes and hit the accelerator again. Do you, and, of course, that, that, that just has made things worse. Do you think that Beijing is prepared to let this company fail? 
in some respects, maybe they would want the company to be weakened and then come in with a quote unquote rescue, but take control of it as they've been flexing their muscle on other sectors that you mentioned. Yeah, I don't know. It remains to be seen. In many, in many ways, I think it already has failed. Um, and, and I know your next guest can, can talk specifically much better than I can on Evergrande um, because he's been vindicated. But, but I, I think that, that how they work it out, it, it clearly needs to be worked out. How they work it out and how they pay the different creditor classes, I think, is going to be telling because it's going to give you a, an insight into the priorities of, of Xi Jinping right now and his leadership as to how they're going to go forward and how they're going to go forward in, in really looking at this mountain of bad debts um, and, and, and how this might be resolved going forward. China went through this, by the way, in 2001. Everybody forgets this, where they had to clean up their banking system um, with the SOE bad debts. The problem is, is that it was much, much smaller. Back then, the Chinese economy was about $1 trillion U.S. before it entered the WTO. And their banking system had assets of, of about $1 trillion. Um, $400 billion was bad. 40% of the banking system had bad assets. I mean, it's incredible. But it was much, much smaller. Today, you have a 13 or $14 trillion U.S. Chinese economy, and the banking system has assets, I believe now at this point, well over $50 trillion. The, the, the tough part about your trade, I, I would think, is that you could envision or can you envision a scenario in which the equity and the debt holders are wiped out, but the lenders are not? Yeah, well, I mean, these have been good trades. I, I, you know, so, so if you take a look at the FXI, Scott, when at the end of 2009, early 2010, the FXI was, was 41 or $42. Um, it's the only major market, as I keep pointing out, for the past 12 years that's gone down. Um, and, and over that time frame, the Chinese economy... Has, uh, has more than doubled. I mean, this has been a terrible place to keep your money as a, as a Western investor. And I think it will continue to be. Uh, shareholders are, and creditors are just not treated well in the Chinese economic model. And I think that'll continue. I want to get to some of the regulatory issues and the scrutiny that's been placed on a number of different sectors there, which you already alluded to. But in light of what you said about this grand sort of moment for President Xi and the way that they deal with this situation. I want to read you a quote from the Wall Street Journal today and get your reaction to it. It speaks directly to what you are speaking of. Quote, the Chinese president, Xi, is not just trying to rein in a few big tech and other companies and show who is boss in China. He is trying to roll back China's uh, decades-long uh, evolution towards Western-style capitalism and put the country on a different path entirely. Do you agree with that statement? Do you think that's what's happening within China? Well, we just had this discussion during my office hours. I just finished my class here at the University of Wisconsin School of Business. And, and someone asked me that question, and we, we had a discussion um, in, in that I think that, that what might be happening here is that, um, that Xi Jinping is, 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 a, is a very bright man, and he's surrounded by very, very able people. They see that this model is not sustainable. There's this, this huge reliance on, on, on real estate and real estate construction. They know inevitably it has to change. And one way to prepare the populace for lower growth and different types of growth, and what I've always said is the dislocations that will occur to the economy to get to a more consumer-driven economy, is to basically set up some enemies. 
right? And, 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 you know, we're putting people in concentration camps in the West. We don't like these technology companies. We don't like these CEOs. We now apparently don't like wealthy people. And we certainly don't like Western interests. And uh, if you're going to prepare the masses for, for lower growth and a more realistic economic model going forward, it helps to basically say it's not our fault. It's their fault. And um, that certainly might be one upshot of what happens here. We'll have to see. Um, but, you know, the other, the other obvious observation here is that the wealthy, uh, the digital economy, um, and others are a clear threat to the, the rule of the, the Chinese Communist Party as power bases. Are, are you looking to... That can't help. That that can't be allowed to to, to remain. Yeah, forgive me for interrupting. Um, are, are, do you intend to increase your short exposure in China as a result of this crackdown that that we're seeing a, a, across the board? You mentioned. I think that one of the casino stocks, whether it's win or otherwise, um, is. Argue, I think it's one of your largest positions that you're betting against. And this story that we've witnessed over the last you know ten days or so plays yeah. right into that. Well, it, it, it's kind of remarkable because you and I have been talking about it. it, it we're short win, and, and it, 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 it's kind of remarkable because for years we've said that, that people are ignoring the fact that the concessions are at risk that expire next year. The law expires in June of next year and has to be rewritten. And, you know, for years investors have just blithely assumed that it, it was going to be renewed with no problems and no changes. And and we didn't think that was the case before Xi Jinping. We certainly don't think it's the case now. And we think that the very lucrative Macau concession is going to, at best, be cut back, and at worst, be cut back dramatically. Um, you know, when Macau is hitting all-time lows, when Macau is anywhere from two-thirds uh, to uh, three-quarters of wins EBITDA, and even going forward, it's going to be more than half. Um, and, and I know that you've had a number of people on halftime, you know, that talk about when as being a value stock and reopening stock, but it's actually one of the most expensive casino stocks out there. Win Macau trades in Hong Kong. The value to win parent is only about $2.8 billion. They're 72% stake. They also have a stake in Win Bet, which is coming public via SPAC. That's worth about $1.8 billion. So that's $4.6 billion. The parent win has over five billion in debt, um, so that the value of the U.S. operations is therefore about eleven or twelve billion dollars implied by the market today in the mid '80s. And uh, when U.S. operations are going to do six hundred million in EBITDA next year in 2022, that means that the market is valuing the U.S. casinos at twenty times next year's EBITDA even adjusting for their betting operation, their online betting, sports betting, and win Macau. It's crazy. And then you've had people come on and say, oh, it's trading at nine times cash flow. They've got to sharpen their pencils uh, because uh, it's anything but. Win, win should be trading in the 40s right now based on where win Macau is, where win bet is, and on a comparable multiple to where Las Vegas Sands was bought out to their U.S. operations uh, at about $6 billion. We think the U.S. operations of Win are worth about the same, about $6 billion. I've, if you put all those numbers together, you get a number, you know, south of 50 bucks. I've got Jim Labenthal calling in later on to discuss the destruction today in Cleveland Cliffs, which is part of this uh, broader story. I will, I will put that to him directly because he is one of those who you are referencing who not only owns Win shares, 
but has been adding to them recently. Um, so I will put that to him and get his response um, to what you I'll, just said. Tell him I'll send him my spreadsheet. <laughs> I will tell him. Uh, he may be listening, in which case he's, he's hearing that now. My, my final question, and it, uh, you know, it, I, I, I sort of re-ask you what I've asked you about your appetite to, to short uh, even more. Does it, does it in any way do that, or does this whole scenario and the way it's unfolding as some long, previously long investors in China have said, this is now, China is uninvestable. Does it make you want to increase your short exposure there, or does it make you even more just not want to play any games there because everything is so unpredictable? Right. Well, other than the the sort of interesting one-offs like the Chinese Robin Hoods and, and those that I think, you know, run risks of being shut down, which makes them really interesting from a risk-reward point of view. The, the bigger issue for Western investors, and Gary Gensler did a great job by Chairman Gensler on CNBC last week, on, um, I believe on, on uh, uh, Squawk on the Street, um, and he hit the nail on the head. He said the real risk here is this VIE structure, and I know you've heard it from other people, but that Western investors need to understand they do not own when they're buying stocks uh, Chinese stocks in Hong Kong or New York, for the vast majority of cases, they do not own the companies in China. They own uh, uh, literally a holding company. They own shares in a holding company in the Caribbean somewhere, and its asset is a piece of paper in a safe that says it has the right to the economics of the businesses in China. Chinese courts and the Chinese Communist Party do not recognize the VIE system. And so this is all an artifice that Western investment bankers and companies have put together to raise money in the West. And when people get on your show and argue the merits of Alibaba, that it's only trading at 15 times cash flow and so on and so forth, no, it, it, it doesn't matter. You don't own those assets. And, and so the question will be, will you ever get your hands on that cash flow or dividends in any way, shape, or form that would justify your ownership. And you know the answer to that, Scott. The money only goes one way. And so that's the big problem. And and Chairman Gensler underscored that in the interview, I thought, really well, that that is the issue here, Uh, that that what is it that Western investors own? What is the disclosure? And do Western investors really know the nature of the equity that they own in these holding companies that may never show them a return. And I think that that's a healthy debate that needs to happen. We will continue to have it, uh, hopefully on this program. Jim Chanos, I appreciate your time very much. Thank you. All right. I do. I have time to get up to Lambeau tonight uh, in time for, for some tailgating. So I, I appreciate uh, being able to do a call in, Scott. All right. We appreciate it as well. Enjoy the game. We'll talk Thanks. to you soon. That's Kinecos founder Jim Chanos joining us. I should note the Dow right now is down 700 points. It's a loss of greater than 2%. Should also remind you, To stay tuned for another halftime exclusive interview coming up, Jim Chanos referenced him. Andrew Left, he's the founder of Citron Research. He first raised questions about Evergrande a decade ago. He paid a price for that. You'll hear from him coming up. And next, another can't-miss interview with BlackRock's Rick Reeder. What all of this means for the global markets from his perspective. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. 
This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I mentioned shares of Cleveland Cliffs. There they are today getting smashed, pacing for the worst day since February. Jim Labenthal on the phone now. Um, Jim, you've recommended this stock so many times on our program. I've lost track of, of how many times. Um, what's your reaction to this big sell-off today? And then I do want to get you to respond to what Jim Chano said about win. And I will do both, Scott. I know we're short on time, so I'll try to keep this tight. I'm going to stay consistent on Cleveland Cliffs. Um, today's sell-off is based on a couple of things. One, the concern that maybe we're at peak economic activity, and the other being the collapse in iron ore prices in China. The peak economic activity, I completely throw that out the window. I mean, there's so many things I could talk about, how high corporate profits are, which means that capital spending is going up, all the supply chain onshoring we're doing. Think about those plants being built in uh, Arizona for semiconductors. That all demands steel. And then, by the way, auto production at some point is going to pick up. Up. We have steel prices right now at almost $2,000 a ton for hot rolled steel. That compares to what Cleveland Cliffs realized in the second quarter, $1,100 a ton. Those prices may come down, but there is still huge demand out there that's going to keep going with infrastructure. Iron ore prices, that's an input cost for Cleveland Cliffs. You want iron ore prices to go down. Their margins are going up. Uh, you saw positive pre-announcements last week from Steel Dynamics, Nucor, and U.S. Steel. It's just a matter of days before Cleveland Cliffs does the same thing. All of this free cash flow is first used to delever the balance sheet. Then it's going to get sent back to us shareholders. They already bought back 1.2 billion shares this year. That's going to continue. Last thing, Scott, because I know you got more you want to do. Um, we've seen drawdowns like this already this year. You saw a 33% drawdown January to March of this year. 25% drawdown in April, 20% drawdown this summer. Each of those drawdowns led to higher highs. That's what I expect to happen here. Okay. I'm glad you addressed that. Um, when? Jim Chano's just said it's worth 40 bucks. That's 50% yeah, lower of, of, of where it is now and offered to send you his spreadsheet on why your metrics are wrong. I'll accept his offer, and I'm grateful to him for it. It was a great discussion having him on. This is a classic case of let's compare our models. He thinks that uh, there is still win Macau value in the share prices right now. I would say effectively there is not. Um, where we have a difference, and I appreciate him throwing out a number. I really do. He's an analyst at heart, so am I. He says $600 million in EBITDA next year uh, for U.S. operations. I, I beg to differ. We had almost $200 million in U.S. operations last quarter. That's going to be growing. I think you are going to see $800 million next year, possibly higher than that, in EBITDA from U.S. operations. And it's going to continue to grow, particularly with the online betting. Um, could it, I don't think there's any value to win Macau in the, in the uh, enterprise value right now. That's where he and I are going to differ. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to 
those EBITDA numbers for U.S. operations. I'd love to continue this conversation. I know we're short on time. You tell me how much further you want to go. None. We're done. (laughs) But I appreciate your willingness to call in and entertain both of those. But we'll certainly keep our eyes on both as you play defense today, defending a couple of key positions. Jim Labenthal, I appreciate it very much. We'll see you back on the desk shortly, I know. There you go with stocks under heavy selling pressure today on fears that China's second largest property developer could be facing default. For more on what the implications could be for global markets, let's now bring in BlackRock's Rick Reeder. He manages $2.7 trillion as CIO of BlackRock's mm-hmm. global fixed income. He's also head of the global allocation team. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. I, I'm always on in uh, less than stable times, but it's still good to be here. And that's why we love to have you. Uh, there are a few voices who are better to hear from in times like this, given uh, what thanks, you sir. manage and where you work. How do you see this? Listen, I think you've got to respect the news. And, and you, know, I, you know, we've talked on this show. If you said to me, what are the risks in the world today? China's a big, you know, the, the growth is slowing in the economy, the, you know, the nature of the financial system and what happened today. You've got to respect this news. Listen, at the end of the day, one of the things that's happening in the markets is clearing prices is really hard. The conviction level in markets is low today. And so you get a piece of news like this, you have to factor it in. And, you know, that being said, will we buy some stuff today? Yeah, I think you can add a little bit of paper if, uh, on, this, on this market pressure. Oh, is that right? I mean, you haven't seen a big fallout in the high yield market from, from this news. Does that tell you that the market doesn't think this has a broader rollover or contagion effect? Yeah, it's a great question, Scott. I mean, I, first of all, I find the equity market, the volume you're seeing, the volatility in individual names and equities in the actual index is much more dramatic than it's been in high yield. There's a couple of things at play. One, the demand for income is extraordinary, and that, that's not going away. So the, the depth of the bid for the high yield market is significant. And listen, I think people in the high yield market have been looking at Evergrande and some of the other names for a while now. I mean, the, the prices in Evergrande have been trading in the 20s cents on the dollar. So it's not like, whew, this is a big piece of news for the credit markets in, in high yield. So I think that's been factored in there. And, you know, we'll see if the markets continue to have a hard time in equities, high yield, We'll back up a bit. But like I said, this has been a name that's been talked about quite a bit in the credit markets. Well, let's talk about that, though. Um, What what do you think this means for equities, if anything? Listen, I mean, if you said to me, where are equities going? They are going higher. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that equities are going higher. And I think I said it on a call last week. We can still reprice. We can still retrace a, a, a few percent of the gain. But equities are going higher. I mean, there's no question in my mind when you look at the alternatives in the world. You know, people have talked about what this means for growth. Listen, U.S. growth is still going to be durable. The, the demand side of growth, what's caused the slowdown in growth in the U.S., no doubt there's been some variant risk. But the f- primary factor that's been, that's been dulling some of the growth has been on the supply side. The demand continues to be robust. So I still think the equity market has got some upside, maybe some significant upside. The one thing I'll throw out there, and I know we talk about it, I know Pete talks about it, you can use convexity in your, port- in your portfolio really effectively when the volatility levels were so low. You can run equities and still have some, some protection on because convexity is priced cheaply. Vol was priced uh, so cheaply. It's obviously popping today, but I still think equities are going higher. Debt ceiling, Delta variant, China issues, which we're talking about um, extensively today, the prospect of higher taxes, none of that matters? Oh, it all matters. <laughs> it, it all matters. It can't and this matter is that why, much if you think equities a, are going higher, it right? It can't matter oh, that it, much. Well, yeah. Well, so actually, if you take, if you actually step back and think about where free cash flow yield or earnings yield, the equity market's pretty attractive. That being said, this is not an unusual time point, time of the year where you get this sort of volatility, including debt ceiling discussion, including a number of these risk factors that play in. Listen, I think the market could adjust down a bit. 
Uh, but I think you're supposed to pick away at some equities. There, there's no doubt in my mind the bid for assets, the liquidity in the system, and quite frankly, these earnings yields are attractive, and you're going to see earnings growth. That Listen, I think equities are going higher, but should you be a bit conservative? Adjust, you know, I haven't bought a lot today, in fact, much at all. But do you respect the news, wait for pullbacks, and then take advantage of it? I all think right, that's I mean, right. And I think ultimately we're going to be higher. You're not alone. I mean, Kramer said, maybe, you know, you've got to wait a couple of days, wait, wait for some of the dust to, to settle. Um, but okay. if, you're, if you're willing to pick away, uh, lastly, because I'm pressed for time today, and I hope you'll forgive me for that, no, where right. would you pick within the equity market? Listen, I mean, I still think, I mean, if you said to me, core part of the portfolio, I don't think I'm going to change this for a long time. Tech and healthcare, love it. And I think those are going to be durable growth, durable growth opportunities. Industrials, I've been buying some of the retailers, particularly ones that have transitioned to more online that are traditional, traditional retailers that have shifted online. The valuations are incredible. The free cash flow they're throwing off is incredible. Listen, I think people forget companies are build, building book value faster than I've ever seen it before. They're building book value in many industries, 20, 25% per annum. Pretty good tailwind for a lot of these equities to take advantage of today, in Un- those sectors particularly. Unsettled times or serene ones. We like having you no matter what. Rick Reeder, thank you. Thanks, man. All right, Thanks we'll see you soon. Me. That's BlackRock's Rick Reeder joining us. Up next, the ETFs you need to watch today amid the sell-off. And don't miss our upcoming halftime exclusive interview with Citron's Andrew Left. He called this a decade ago. We're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of the Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. The landmines for investors in China keep piling up. COVID-related slowdown in retail sales, Chinese regulators clamping down on everything from Internet companies to online video games. And now issues with China property giant Evergrande. What's an international investor to do? Let's talk with Arnie Nowak. He runs DWS, who runs the X-Trackers China A-Shares ETF. It tracks the 300 largest and most liquid China shares traded on the Shanghai and Shenzhen exchanges. And Dan Wiener, chairman of Advisor Investments and editor of the Independent Advisor for Vanguard Investors. Arnie, I'll start with you. How much is Evergrande a systemic risk to other real estate developers in China and to banks in China in general? How big a problem is this? Well, thank you for having me. So speaking with our CIO in Asia, um, we obviously take the issue very seriously. Um, We look at all the implications. For now, though, we do not believe that this is representative or will lead to a broader systemic uh, crisis as such. You don't. Okay, Dan, now you run $7 billion. You've been a very big proponent of investing in international growth sectors. What are you telling your clients? Should they be putting more money or less money into China? What we're telling our clients is that you need to work with investment managers, portfolio managers with boots on the ground. That means using actively managed funds, not ETFs, not just focused on the entire market. And the important thing here, Dan, is you're a big proponent of Vanguard International Growth ETF. That's an actively managed fund. Why actively managed over passive investments right now? 
Yeah, it's not an ETF. International growth is actually an actively managed open-end mutual fund. Uh, two fantastic managers, Bailey Gifford and Schroeder out of UK, they have people on the ground. They are making choices as to which companies to buy and which to avoid. And that makes all the difference. You know, their performance against uh, an emerging markets index or China index, whichever one you want to pick, it pretty much doubled the China index over the last three, five years. So uh, I would go with the active managers. Okay, much more on what to do with your China investments coming up on ETF Edge, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Plus, Dan's going to tell us what he's telling his clients about navigating through a tough September. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime back right after this. There's your stock picture right now. Uh, just around the lows of the day, 712 is the loss for the Dow. It's greater than 2%. Merck, the only Dow stock in the green today. And that move is a slight move positive. Everything else is negative on a decidedly down day on Wall Street, in part because of the next story that we continue to discuss. Our next guest first raised questions about China's Evergrande in 2012 when he published a short report calling the company insolvent. The fallout from that report was dramatic. Citron Research founder Andrew Left joins me now in a CNBC exclusive. Welcome back. It's good to see you. Nice to see you, Scott. I, I have the report right here. June 21st of 2012 is, is when you published. For disclosure sake, first and foremost, do you have a position today in Evergrande? Well, I'm banned for five years from trading in Hong Kong because of that report. Uh, and the trial that went afterwards. So, no, I do not have a position in ever. So you're, you're alluding to the, the backlash that you faced when you did put that report out. Um, you were sued and you decided to go to trial, which cost you millions of dollars and lasted six, seven years, right? Yeah, lasted a long time, went to trial, went to the Court of Appeals, tried everywhere we could just to get the truth out. Uh, great counsel in Hong Kong to show that the company was masquerading its balance sheet and its off-balance sheet projects were going to cause insolvency in the near term. And uh, we lost that battle after and had to pay all the fees and associated with it and a five-year suspension from trading. Do you feel vindicated today? People who know Evergrande knew this was a long time coming. Uh, the fact that the government went after Evergrande or somehow put restrictions on its debt recently it, it was it was coming. It, it, I don't know if it's going to happen last year, the year before, today or next year, but it couldn't continue the way it is. But I guess, yes, in the court of the public news stream, somewhat vindication. I'd like to have my time and my money back, obviously, but vindicated this way. Yes. How did you find this story in the first place? I was tipped off by someone. And then after I spoke to different you know, funds out there, it was not been it's not been a big secret. Uh, it didn't come on. It's not like when Bear Stearns happened and how did this happen? No one really knew. People knew two things, that you should be short Evergrande, one. And number two, it's very scary to be short Evergrande. Hu Kayan, the CEO, is a very well-connected brand. And they were able to keep it going a lot longer than many people thought they would have. What's amazing is that as I look at your report, which I, which I held up and I had in front of me, you said at the time that the company's debt was nearly $12 billion back in 2012. Now we're talking about what's said to be more than $300 billion. Yeah, amazing. And that's what we know of right now. Uh, there could be other skeletons in that closet. Wouldn't doubt it whatsoever. There's going to be collateral damage. Uh, I don't think it's systemic through the uh, China whatsoever. I think the market data being down is just because it can't go up every day. 
and we're just backfilling the excuse. So I don't think there's any form of contagion that's going to come from Evergrande through the global economy. Well, what's the collateral damage then that you're speaking about? I mean, unfortunately, there's going well, the equity holders will probably be wiped out. Uh, can't speak for the debt. They probably lose a lot of employees. And unfortunately, some of the real estate speculators in China and some of the employees in China who trusted Evergrande are going to lose their money. Uh, the Chinese government probably has a plan to deal with it uh, without it widespread ruining the Chinese economy. So the chicken little that I'm reading about today, I don't think really exists. But the collateral damage, I think, will be mitigated by the government. So you could see a scenario in which I brought up with Jim Chanos that the equity and debt holders are wiped out, but the lenders are not, because that would be uh, have the potential, at least for a more systemic issue uh, in China, if not beyond. Yes. I mean, the government's first priority is to take care of the customers and take care of the employees. Afterwards, they don't even care about the equity holders and the bondholders. It's a caveat emptor. It was all right in the filings, the debt. So if you chose to buy that debt, then that's on you. When the employees gave their money, their bonuses to buy equity in the company or they would not have gotten bonuses, that's a bigger problem. Well, what do you do when your ban expires this fall, I believe? Uh, So we're right on the cusp of that. Will you short China stocks again? Are you fully out of the market? How do you look at that market now as an investor? It's funny, Scott. I make a joke. Maybe the only way to save Evergrande now is if I go out and short the equity. Uh, So I'm going to find a way to make it survive. Uh, I I don't see me being active in Hong Kong or China. I mean, after what I've learned from this experience is respecting the cultural differences between the two. And maybe activist short selling isn't something that is willing to be accepted as much in Hong Kong when it comes to sensitive companies like in Evergrande. Things are sensitive to the economy. So I don't see myself activist short selling in Hong Kong. But sure, I will buy securities in Hong Kong, no doubt. You will. Why not? If there's an opportunity. Yeah, we'll continue to follow the story. Andrew, it's good to see you again. I appreciate you coming on and and talking about this. Uh, It is remarkable to look back at your report of of more than uh, 10 years ago uh, talking about this very issue. That's Andrew Left of Citron. We'll see you soon. Final trades are next. All right, Pete, I want unusual activity from you, please, first, and then your final trade. Absolutely. Lucid Group is the first one, Scott. We've got a buyer of 10,000 of this week's expiring 25 calls. Stock was trading 23. They also bought 7,500 of the 28 calls that expire this Friday as well. So very short term. Uranium is another one. URA, it's an ETF. This one's interesting. They're buying 3,500 November 26 calls here as well, Scott. So a lot of activity there, and we know what CCJ has done recently as well. Mm -hmm. Huge run up, now a little bit of a pullback. Final trade, UAA, Under Armour. All right. Good stuff. It's great to see everybody. Thanks so very much for watching The Exchanges right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. 
it was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.